Jeremiah 23 is our passage. I'm going to admit to you a couple of things that I like. Uh, I like over the last year when we had to go every other row that many of you were displaced from your normal seat. And I love that now that we're back to not being every other row, some of you have no idea what to do, where to sit, where to go, should you go back to your old seat, whatever. I also like the one month out of every year where we take all the extra bulletins that we've ordered and we use them for the same Sunday and we put them out on that table and I get to watch you come in and see that all of the bulletins are different covered and some of you just panic. Some of you don't know what to do. You look at that table and you think, do I take all of them? Do I take, what do I do here? So if your neighbor's doesn't look like yours this morning, no biggie. Uh, on the inside, you should have an insert that says Jeremiah 23. If you didn't get one of those, uh, go back and, and try another one, I suppose. But our passage is Jeremiah 23. If you were to back up in the book of Jeremiah and read the verses leading up to Jeremiah 23, verse 1 to 8, you would read about the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, chronicling and criticizing the recent kings of Judah. And they're just listed by name. And the Lord through Jeremiah says, this is what I didn't like about this one. This is what I didn't like about this one. This is where this one fell short. And it leads right up to King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah is not part of that list, but the list leads right up to Zedekiah. Zedekiah is not mentioned in our passage, but likely our passage, we're gonna talk about this, is making reference to Zedekiah. So we'll start with this. This word from the Lord likely came to Jeremiah during the reign of Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah. I can't show you a verse that says this happened, this word came to Jeremiah during the reign of Zedekiah. But when you lead the passage, uh, the verses leading up to it, and you pay attention closely to what is said and how it's said in our passage, I think this is the likely answer. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. He was dethroned when the Babylonians marched for a final time on the city of Jerusalem, breached the gates, destroyed the temple, and sent thousands of Jewish people into exile. His name literally means righteous is the Lord. The first part of his name is the Hebrew word for righteous or righteousness. The last part of his name, that I-A-H in English, is sort of an abbreviation and a reference to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. And so what his name literally means is righteous is the Lord. You're going to need to remember that as we work through this passage and we get to a, a verse further down in our passage. So just file that away. You need to know what his name means. You also need to know this. Our passage is an oracle of woe an oracle of woe, and it is directed against the shepherds of Israel. That's straight out of verse 1. The first word in English is woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. In this oracle of woe, God through Jeremiah is promising to judge a certain group of people for their sins. There are a lot of these oracles of woe in the Old Testament prophets. This one is directed to shepherds, the shepherds of Israel or the shepherds of Judah. And just to be clear, he's not directing this oracle of woe to the guys out in the field with the sheep. He's using this term shepherd 
to talk about the religious and the political leaders of the nation. So if you wanted to think specific categories of people that are included in this woe, he's talking about the kings, and he's talking about the prophets, and he's talking about the priests. These people who were supposed to shepherd the nation are now receiving an oracle of woe, a promise of judgment from the Lord. Now, our passage is also a prophecy, and so we want to say a quick word about Bible prophecy. Like many biblical prophecies, this passage looked to the future, and it describes multiple fulfillments in a single prophecy. In other words, many times in Bible prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New, the prophet looks forward and he describes a number of events. And when you read the prophecy in its original setting, you think, well, all of these things are going to happen someday, and it sounds like they're all going to happen at the same time. But as you get closer to the unfolding of the prophecy, you realize that there's sometimes distance between the fulfillments of that prophecy. So a couple of examples. We've talked about these recently on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. If you leave Odessa and you drive west into New Mexico, at some point you see mountains. And you first see the mountains over on the horizon as sort of a a gray, purplish, bluish, sort of looks like a low-hanging cloud. And you get a little bit closer and you can see a little bit of definition. And you look at those mountains and you think, well, that's one mountain and it just goes up and it goes down. And you know, if you've made this drive, when you get to the mountains, they're all spread out. There's great space between them. One is closer and one is further. That's sort of how Bible prophecy works. When you're far away, it looks like one big mountain. But when you get up upon it, there's actually space between those peaks. Another example would be space itself. When you stand on the earth and you look up in the night sky, you see all these white dots up in the sky. And you look up there and you say, look how close all these stars are. It's just like the night sky is packed with them. But you know, if you pass seventh grade science, that if you were to leave the earth and go out of the earth's atmosphere, you would realize these stars are not close to each other at all. From one vantage point, they look very, very close and bunched up. But as you get up upon them, they're spaced out and there's great distances between them. That's how many Bible prophecies work and that's certainly how this prophecy works. Jeremiah is looking to the future and he describes a number of things that are going to happen. And on a surface reading, it sounds like it's all going to happen at the same time. But as time unfolded, God's people realized, well, some of this was fulfilled here and some of it was fulfilled Later, And so we're going to try to sort that out. Here's the big idea of our passage. This is a simple truth, but it's an important truth. The big idea of this passage is that only God can save his people. That kind of feels like preschool, Sunday school, right? Only God can save his people. For some reason, human beings are quite literally hell-bent on forgetting that truth. And we begin to think so quickly and so easily that politicians can save us or political parties can save us or armies can save us or a a worldview or a way of thinking can save us or a degree can save us. We think money can save us. We think doctors can save us. We look to all sorts of things and places and people and objects that have absolutely no power to save. We are hell bent on looking 
to these things and these people to save us. And we need to be reminded that only God can save us. That's why we sang the song Jake led us in just a minute ago, God is so good. We're prone to forget that. We say it. We sing it. We can repeat it. We could fill in the blank, but we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. He is good. Regardless of what you're facing, he's good. And we need to be reminded of this truth. Jeremiah is reminding us this morning that only God can save his people. As this prophecy unfolds, there are two big fulfillments that we're going to talk about. So first, we're going to talk about the historical fulfillment. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. The Babylonians marched on his kingdom. They destroyed the capital of Jerusalem. They breached the walls. They tore the temple down. They hauled thousands of people into exile. And Judah was sent into exile because they followed wicked shepherds. The people of Judah, just like the people of the northern kingdom of Israel had been years before, the people of Judah were sent into exile, and part of the issue was the influence of these wicked shepherds. Now, it's interesting to think about the the exile in terms of who was responsible for the exile. Whose fault was it? Why did the people go into exile? I could give you many Bible passages that suggest it was the responsibility and it was the fault of the people, the nation. They were idolatrous. They were wicked. They turned from the Lord. They forgot that he was the only one that could save them. It was their fault. I could also point you to verse 3 in Jeremiah 23 where the Lord takes responsibility for the whole thing and he says that he has driven them into exile. Now, historically, that hadn't happened yet when Jeremiah spoke these words, but it was really close. It was so close and so certain that God talks about it in the prophetic past tense, and he says, I have driven them into exile. God takes responsibility for it. He says, I was the the one sovereign over the people going into exile. So we could say the people are responsible. We could say the Lord is responsible. He takes some responsibility for it. But in this passage, there's also culpability laid on the shepherds. Look at verse 2. You have scattered my flock, and you have driven them away. The Lord blames the shepherds. It's your fault, and it's your responsibility that the people have left. And I think that just as one example, the Lord is thinking about people like Manasseh. This is what we read about Manasseh, one of the recent kings of Judah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He built altars in the house of the Lord. That doesn't mean altars to the Lord. That means altars to false pagan gods inside of God's temple. And he burned his son, As an offering, we talked about that recently. These kings of Judah who went out to the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned their children as an offering to pagan deities. Manasseh did that. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. That's not everything that 2 Kings 21 says about Manasseh, but it's a sampling. He was one of the wicked shepherds of Judah. And because of his wickedness, wickedness that filtered down to his nation, the people are sent into exile. The solution to all of this is in Jeremiah 23, verse 3 and 4. Eventually, Judah is brought back into the land, and they're brought back by good shepherds. God promises this. 
Yes, he's going to send them into exile, but then he's going to give them good shepherds, not like Manasseh. These good shepherds are going to bring them back. Verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold. They'll be fruitful. They'll multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they, my flock, they will fear no more. They won't be dismayed. Not any of them will be missing, declares the Lord. This happened in history. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He sent the people into exile because of the wicked shepherds, people like Manasseh, people like Zedekiah. And then he brought the people back using good, godly shepherds. Men like, to give you one example among many, Ezra. Look what we read about Ezra. Just Contrast this with Manasseh. Ezra, one of the men who brought the people back. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's one of the good shepherds that God raised up to bring his people back into the promised land. There was others. There was a man named Nehemiah. There were prophets named Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, men who brought the people back into God's land. Here's the point. All of this happened in history. At the time that God speaks these words in Jeremiah 23, it hasn't happened yet, but it happened. The people really were sent into exile because of their wickedness, wickedness that was following the lead of the wicked shepherds. And then God raised up good shepherds, godly shepherds, and he brought his people back into the land. All of it happened exactly like Jeremiah said it would happen. But we haven't covered all of the prophecy in this passage. And so we look at the historical fulfillment and then we pivot and say, now let's talk about the Christological fulfillment. Because it didn't just happen in the exile and the return, but there's also a fulfillment to be seen here in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, absolute favorite, is a story of mistaken identity. So, I just want you to think for a minute about mistaken identity. I had a, an experience of this just a couple of days ago on Friday. I had somebody call me, and they said they were with uh, my TV provider. And I'm up for a discount. And they told me, hey, you're up for a discount. And so we started this conversation, and I was very pleased with the way things were going. I was about to get this big discount. And then at some point in the conversation, I thought, I don't think I'm talking to who I think I'm talking to. And they begin to say, well, this is what we need you to do, and this is how you're going to pay us. And I said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is a scam. They were really good. I mean, they had me going for 15, 20, 30 minutes thinking, I'm about to save so much money. This is going to be fantastic. And then at some point I realized I'm not talking to who I actually think that I'm talking to. The whole thing was a scam. Let me give you a couple of other examples, just thinking mistaken identity. When I was a college student at WT, uh, my first year I lived on campus. The year that I lived on campus at WT, West Texas A&M in Canyon, there was a girl who repeatedly throughout the semester would come up behind me and hug me. She thought I was her boyfriend. And she would do this over and over and over again. And she would start talking in my ear. And then I would turn around and I would look at this girl, and she would be mortified. Absolutely just, she was just sick with what she had done. And the first time it happened, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I, I suppose that could happen to anybody. The second time, I, th- I thought, 
are you trying to put the moves on me? Is this a, what are you doing? Is this like a bad pickup line? But then the third time, in the, I'm telling you, it happened multiple, multiple times. And finally, I looked at this girl and I said, you need to stop hugging people from behind. This is not a good approach for you as you relate to other human beings. You need to see people in the face. I'm telling you, every time I looked at her, turned around, she was just sick, absolutely sick, right? Mistaken identity. One time I took a, a mission trip, a short-term mission trip to China, and I was with a, a good friend named Tracy Ward. Tracy Ward uh, is white, he's about this tall, and he's bald. And so we went on this short-term mission trip to China, and there was one day we were going to a, a show, Chinese acrobat show, towards the end of the trip. We're standing in line out on the streets. We're up in northern China. And if you've ever traveled to China, it is very... Uh, monocultural. There's just, it's mostly all Chinese people. And so two tall white guys with no hair stand out in the crowd. And there we are, standing in this long line, two big tall white guys, all these Chinese people around us, and many of them are staring at us. I mean, they're just not even trying to hide it, just staring at us. And after about 10 minutes, this man walks up to us. I think they picked him because maybe he had the best English, I don't know. He walks up to Tracy and I, and in broken English, he says, I won't try to do the broken English, but he says, do you play in the NBA? <laughs> and we looked at each other, and we looked at the man, and we said, yes, we do play in the NBA. <laughs> and he said, can I take a picture with you? And we said, yes, you can. And so he got in the middle of us. It was me, and then this little man, and then Tracy right here, and we took a picture. And then that emboldened other people who were staring at us. And they just kept coming, one after another. And we took all these pictures, and we smiled, and we looked great, thumbs up. Hey, this is awesome. And I like to think that my picture is in somebody's office or on somebody's wall. And they tell this story, I went to the show, and I met this NBA player. Who is he? I don't know, but he plays in the NBA. Okay, so uh, a case of mistaken identity. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a case of mistaken identity. It's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. It is an amazing story. Jesus has died, he's been buried, and he's been raised from the dead. And this story takes place on the evening of Easter Sunday after Jesus has been raised from the dead. In this story, two disciples are walking from a town called Emmaus, excuse me, from a town called Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. These two disciples are walking, and they have heard that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as they walk, they're trying to process all the things that have happened about Jesus and this news of the resurrection, and they're not sure how to, how to make sense of it all. And in the story, Jesus appears to them, and he walks beside them on this road. And as he's walking beside them, we're not exactly sure how this works, but they don't recognize Jesus. His identity is somehow hidden or veiled from them. But as they walk, Jesus is essentially leading them in a Bible study. He is walking them through the Old Testament, helping them understand the truth about the Messiah. This is what we read in Luke 24, 47. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's just walking them through the Old Testament, talking about the things that pointed forward to the Messiah. If you could go back in time 
and sit in on any Bible study in history that you missed, I think this is the one you would want to go back to. Just to walk as a third disciple to Emmaus and to listen to Jesus walk through the scriptures, starting with Moses through all the prophets, interpreting all the things. And Bible scholars love to speculate and say, what did Jesus talk to them about? What specific passages? Here's some of the suggestions they come up with. Maybe Jesus started with Genesis 3, the promise that God would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe he talked about that passage. Maybe he talked about Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac as Abraham takes his son up the mountain and he learns this truth that God's people clung to for thousands of years that on the mountain of the Lord, God would provide the sacrifice. Maybe it was Exodus 12, the Passover, how Jesus is the Passover lamb that died so that death could pass over us. Maybe it's the book of Leviticus. Can you imagine a Bible study in the book of Leviticus? Leviticus 16, Jesus talking about the day of atonement and the death of these animals, blood being sprinkled in the holy place. Maybe it was Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the, New, the whole New Testament. Surely, he quoted Psalm 10. Uh, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the clearest, most vivid prophecy about how the Messiah would suffer and die. I think in the running for all of these passages is our passage, Jeremiah 23. There's a historical fulfillment in the exile and the return but as Jesus, the disciples not knowing who he is, this case of mistaken identity, as the disciples listen to Jesus teach them through the scriptures, I think perhaps he talked about Jeremiah 23, among others. And so let's talk about the Christological fulfillment. There's four pieces, four parts of this prophecy that I want you to see. Here's the first. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. All the greatest leaders of Israel, the Hebrews in the Old Testament, were shepherds. Abraham, shepherd. Moses, shepherd. King David started out as a shepherd. In fact, it was King David who wrote Psalm 23 and made this equation between the Lord and this idea of a shepherd. And he said, in words that we all know, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd, Yahweh is my shepherd. He protects me. He provides for me. He saves me. He leads me. The historical fulfillment of this took place when God raised up good and godly shepherds, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Malachi, these leaders and these prophets who brought the people back into the land. But there was one thing that Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Malachi, if you read their stories, there's one thing that they couldn't do. They couldn't change hearts. They couldn't really deal with the sin that lived in the hearts of God's people, which is why in the fullness of time, God sent his son not just to be another good shepherd, but to be the good shepherd. The good shepherd deals with our sin, and we read it like this in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ezra couldn't do that. Nehemiah couldn't do that. Haggai couldn't do it. Malachi couldn't do it. Jesus did it. He laid down his life for us. He did it at the cross. 
He died for our sin because it was the only way for the sin in our hearts to be truly and fully and finally dealt with. It's for our sin to be placed on the good shepherd and Jesus willingly died for our sins. Second, second fulfillment. Jesus is the branch of David. He's the branch of David. One of the coolest Old Testament themes you trace all through the Old Testament up through the New Testament. It starts in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what we read, 2 Samuel 7, the Lord God speaking to David. The Lord declares to you, to David, that the Lord will make you a house. Remember, King David wanted to build a temple. And God said, well, that's cute, but he didn't ask you to build a temple for me, and I don't need a house. I've never lived in a house. I don't remember asking you to build one for me. What I'm going to do is build you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. The prophecy goes on and God says, I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's an initial historical fulfillment of that in Solomon, David's son, who was raised up and who builds this temple. But the ultimate fulfillment happened in Jesus. He's the true offspring of David. He is the true son of David. He's this branch of David. Look how he's described in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, he's the righteous branch of David. He will be a king and he will deal wisely with God's people. This is why when you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the very first verse that you read says this, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I know that genealogies are boring. I know you read Matthew chapter 1 and you say, I don't even know how to say half of those names. What in the world? Why do I need all these names? You need them. You really, really need them. Because right from the outset, the gospel writers, Matthew is telling you, Jesus is is the branch of David. He is the promised king. Not just the king who will build a temple with stones and rocks and timber, but the king who would be the temple, who would be the righteous king whose throne will be established forever. That's what Jeremiah is promising. He's the good shepherd. He's the branch of David. Third, Jesus is our righteousness. That word shows up a couple of times. Verse 5 talks about a, a righteous branch for David. Not just any branch, but a righteous branch. Verse 6, he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. You remember I told you that there's a, uh, an implication in this passage that it's about Zedekiah. He's not named. All these other kings are named leading right up to him, and then he's not named, but he's sort of named Here's what I mean by that. Zedekiah, the name Zedekiah, I showed you this earlier, literally means righteous is the Lord. But in this passage, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says that the branch of David is going to be called what? The Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is righteous. It's essentially the name Zedekiah flipped backwards. It's almost as if the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, look, 
the one who comes from David, the true branch of David, the true king of Israel. He'll be a king like Zedekiah, but really completely opposite of Zedekiah. And he just takes his name and he flips it around. And if you're reading it in context, he's listed all these kings. You expect him to just rattle off Zedekiah with all the rest of them. He doesn't do that, but there's sort of this implied shot taken at Zedekiah to say the irony of of Zedekiah being the last king, meaning righteous is the Lord, that Zedekiah was not righteous and he did not love the Lord. There will be another king like Zedekiah, but in other ways not like Zedekiah. And so his name is taken and it's completely flipped around and there's this promise that Jesus, the true branch of David, the good shepherd, will be our righteousness. It's really good news for you that Jesus is our righteousness, and this is why. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is just the simple gospel message. It's the heart of what happened at the cross when the good shepherd laid down his life for ours. He was perfectly righteous. We are not. And in laying down his life for us, our unrighteousness is placed on Jesus. And in our trusting in the good news about Jesus Christ, his righteousness is placed on us. It's this great exchange that takes place. Jesus on the cross takes our sin, our wickedness, our filth, our unrighteousness. And by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive his Righteousness. Jeremiah is talking about that. Thousands of years before Jesus, excuse me, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Jesus is our righteousness. One last truth that I think ties it all together Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior. Look at verse 7, Jeremiah 23 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, quote, here's a quote. As the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. People used to say that. As the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I told you earlier, if you could go back and eavesdrop on any one Bible study, you ought to pick the Bible study in Luke 24. It would be phenomenal. It would be mind-blowing. I'll also tell you, if you could go back and witness any cluster of miracles in the Bible, you would want to go back to the book of Exodus. It is the most awesome, awe-inspiring story in all of the Old Testament. It is the formation and the foundation of who the Hebrew people were, is when they became a nation. And the miracles were absolutely amazing. This formed the identity of these people, so much so that they used to say, quote from Jeremiah, as the Lord lives, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. That was the foundation of their identity. God says in Jeremiah 23, I'm gonna do a thing like that. It's gonna be another great thing, like bringing the people out from Egypt. Verse eight, what they're going to say now is, quote, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. God says, it's going to be like a new exodus when I bring you back from exile. It's going to be identity forming. 
It's going to shape who you are and how you think about yourself and how you talk about yourself. It's not just going to be these are the people that the Lord brought out from Egypt, but it's going to be these are the people that the Lord brought from exile. He didn't just bring them from one nation, Egypt. He brought them from all of the nations where they had been scattered. And it happened. God brought his people back through the good shepherds like Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Malachi. But it wasn't the last exodus that happened in the Bible. There's one more exodus. In fact, it's the greatest exodus of all. And you get a preview of it in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes three of his disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up a mountain. And on this mountain we call the Mountain of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals his glory to these three men. They see Jesus in all of his unveiled, unrestrained glory. And two men show up on the mountain to talk with Jesus. One is Elijah and the other is Moses. Moses, who led the first exodus of God's people. And as they're talking... Peter, James, and John listening, Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, this is what they're talking about, Luke chapter 9. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, I have no idea why English translators use the word departure. It is literally the word exodus. Moses shows up on the mountain of transfiguration to talk to Jesus about the exodus that he's about to experience in Jerusalem. What in the world is he talking about? Plagues and parting a sea and providing manna in the wilderness? No, not really. What is he talking about? Bringing people back from exile as they've been scattered from all different nations? No, not exactly. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus bearing our unrighteousness so that we could receive his righteousness. He's talking about the good shepherd who's going to lay down his life for the sheep. He's talking about the branch of David, the king of kings who will die for his people. He's talking about the truth that Jesus leads the greatest exodus of all. He leads his people from sin and death to life and righteousness. It is an amazing thing to open the scriptures and to read a passage like Jeremiah 23, which is some 24, 2500 years old, and to think this passage, this prophecy, this oracle of woe, it's happened. It's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in the history of of Israel being sent into exile and brought back into the land. It's an amazing fulfillment. And it's happened in a greater way as Jesus, the good shepherd, the branch of David, the truly righteous one, has laid down his life to save us. And so here we are in Odessa, Texas, 2021, reading an ancient Hebrew prophecy, some 2,500 years old, And looking back through the years saying, it happened. It's true. We believe that what Jeremiah promised has actually come about in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this old, old story from the days of Jeremiah 
has the power to change your life for all of eternity. Jesus is the Savior. He is the only one who can save you. And you can experience that salvation today. Many of you have experienced it. And it's good for us, those of us who have been saved, who are being saved, it's good for us to stop and look back and think about these promises and the fulfillment and to thank God for what he's done to save us. Some of you have not experienced this salvation. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. You can do that today. This old, old, ancient prophecy is true, and it is powerful to save. God alone can save his people, and he has acted once and for all in the Son, Jesus Christ, to save you.